It's James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, verse number. I'm entitled 2024, Lord willing. I'll follow along as I read. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. And you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. You know, the English language has been influenced by many languages, but none more than Latin. And even today, there's phrases that come to us in their original form. Our money has the words e pluribus unum on it, which means out of many, one. The hope was, as a nation made up of immigrants, somehow we could still weld ourselves into one people. Or how about caveat emptor? That should be on the top of every used car dealership. It means buyer beware. Well, ad nauseum. As in, oh, he went on, ad nauseum. Well, that means to the point of sickness. Or how about in vitro? It literally means in the glass, like in in vitro test tube babies. Ex cathedra? That means from the chair. Catholics believe that when the Pope speaks from the chair, that means from his official capacity as the head of the church, he's infallible in what he says. A couple more. Semper Fidelis. Who uses that phrase? That's the Marine Corps, that's right. It means always faithful. But what about sick semper tyrannis? As many of you are familiar with that. It means thus always to tyrants. It's the state motto of Virginia, and it's the phrase that John Wilkes Booth used after he shot President Lincoln and then jumped to the theater stage. But there's another Latin phrase, one that really has kind of fallen out of use, that wasn't even listed in the list of Latin phrases I looked up, and that's Deo Valente which Deo means God and Valente means willing, and so it comes into English as God willing or Lord willing. It's something that people used to write in their letters as they closed them. DV, Deo Valente. Of course, that's not just a simple Latin phrase, that's also a deep theological truth. That is that whatever our plans and intentions are, it's ultimately God's will that comes to pass. As it says in Proverbs 16.1, the mind of a man plans his way, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. Or as it says in Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it's the counsel of the Lord that will stand. Well, it is this understanding and acknowledgement of that truth that stands at the core of our recognizing God as creator and sovereign of the universe. And it's also the foundation for our trust in him as we face the challenges in everyday life. And so today, as we begin a new year, we want to learn what James has to say about this great truth and what it really means to say, Deo Valente, Lord willing. And so why don't we pray and get into the text. Father, I need to pray for grace and mercy that you'd help us. Give us the grace that we need to understand and to apply this truth to our life and to live it out in absolute dependence on you. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have five verses, but I think it breaks down into two parts. First, we find the arrogant boasting of human plans, and that's in verses 13 to 14. And second, the humble acknowledgement of divine sovereignty, and that's 15 to 17. (coughs) Arrogant boasting of human plans. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, stay there for a year, engage in a a business, and make a profit. Come now, those of you who say. You know, James has a lot to say about what we say and how we use our tongues. Earlier in this letter, he said this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot... Be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. James doesn't buy into the idea that the devil made me do it or that God is the one responsible when I fall into sin. No, James says it's our own evil desires which cause us to sin when we face temptation. Moms with their children, they often, I hear them say, you know, she wouldn't get in trouble. He wouldn't get in trouble if it wasn't the bad kids they hung around with. By the way, the other parents are saying that about your kids, right? No, your kids get in trouble and do bad things because when they're presented with the opportunity, they go for it. You know, it's bad enough when kids do wrong. It's even worse when kids or the kids' parents cover for them. I mean, the fox might steal the chickens, but the dog doesn't need to hold the bag at the time. There's a lot of parents who spend a lot of more time defending their kids when they do wrong rather than teaching them to do right. Now, later in his letter, James asks this question, What use is it, my brother, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Does that kind of faith save him? Churches in America are filled with people like that, people who claim that they're Christians, followers of Christ, and yet they don't do what Jesus tells them to do. And James says that we're supposed to prove ourselves to be doers of the law, or of the word, rather than mere hearers who've deceived ourselves. And James also tells us that this little part of our body called the tongue is a powerful weapon. As one commentator described, he said the, uh, the, the tongue is like the dragon that lives in the ca uh, cave underneath the nose. Well, James says it's a small rudder which controls a big ship. It's like a tiny fire that sets a whole forest ablaze. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I like to say that our tongues are the exhaust pipe of our heart. Whatever is burning down inside gets vented out through the chimney of our mouth. And what was burning down inside of these smoky words in verse 13 is a whole lot of pride. Now these are words that could be spoken by a young man at the beginning of his career or a football coach at the start of a new season. It could be a president after he's just elected or a young woman who's planning out just when she will marry, how many kids she'll have, and what kind of house she will live in. Now, James uses the picture of a couple businessmen. Jews by that day were already good merchants. Yes, Yitzhak, I think we'll go to Antioch or Damascus, open up a rug shop, stay there a year, make a 23.4% profit on our capital investment. I can't help think of the Jewish merchants in Berlin before Kristallnacht that is the night of the glass. Germans rampaged and burned synagogues and smashed out storefronts stealing their goods. Did any of the people a few days before that believe that they and their families would be in gas chambers within a year? Or how about the Titanic? Remember that ship was unsinkable and the only thing it ever did was sink. How many people got on that day, thought they were going for a vacation? They didn't know they'd be sailing into eternity. Or what of Saddam Hussein? The one-time dictator of Iraq. He held life and death in his hands. You know, if he ever invited you up to a for a helicopter ride, you should not go because he used to push people out when they got up there. And yet what happened to that man at the end of his life? He was hiding in an underground area. They finally caught him and they hung him. Last thing he said before he died was that he was going to Allah most merciful. No, you're not. You're going to Jehovah most just. Is it wrong, though, to plan for the future? No. Is it wrong to want to make a profit for your business? No, if you don't make profits, you have no business. Then what's the problem? It's doing our calculations and running our numbers and projecting our plans without figuring God into the equation. You know, every now and then I like to read about business sections in the paper. and You'll, you'll, you'll see like some large company like Ford where they have to restate their profits from the previous quarter and they were off by $500 million. They actually lost money. And you think, how can you miscalculate to that extent? 
But didn't Jesus talk about a man who miscalculated? He told that parable of the man who was a rich landowner. He had land and he said it was very productive. And he began to reason himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like a commercial for an investment company. Man said a lot of things. He's a big businessman with big ideas, big plans. He's a rich farmer from Napa Valley. Well, then God said something to him. You fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. And then who will have and own what you've prepared? He left God out of his equation. Relying on himself, thinking that he was in control. You know, William Hensley, Ernest Hensley, was a poet. Lived in the 1800s. And uh, he had a rough life growing up. He ended up getting tuberculosis of the bones. Did you know you can get tuberculosis in your bones? He ended up having to have his leg amputated. Um, it's interesting because he became the, the, the inspiration for Treasure Island for Long John Silver because he got a prosthetic leg afterwards. And uh, the, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote that, was a friend of his. Well, he had gone through life. He was in and out of the hospital. He wrote poems about that. He had just difficult things. He lost his daughter when she was like five years of age. She had been sick and had to spend most of her time in the nursery. Couldn't go out. She became the inspiration for um, Peter Pan, the story. Isn't that interesting? And uh, they told him later on that he was going to have to have his other leg removed, but he, he didn't want to do that. So he went to a, a well-known doctor at the time, a surgeon named Joseph Lister, as in Listerine, right? So this guy had, was connected, became a very wealthy man. But you'd think going through all those things, he would be a person who you know, would turn to God and hope and looking for strength. No. He defied God. He actually wrote a poem about it called Invictus. Listen to his words. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods there may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloodied, but unbowed. Beyond this pale place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. He means death. And yet the menace of the years shall find me and finds me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, think of who said that, Jesus, how charged the punishment of the scroll, meaning the threats of hell. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Huh. No, he wasn't the master of his fate or the captain of his soul. He died when he was 53 years old. His tuberculosis came back. And James is telling us with just a few minutes of thought that reality that we are not the captain of our fate and the master of our souls would, would, would come home to us. Why is that? Well, first of all, because we simply cannot know the future. I mean, not that people don't want to. I mean, at this time, in this week between Christmas and New Year's, that's when you always get the prognosticators on telling us what's going to happen in the economy, what's going to happen in sports, what's going to happen in politics. What they ought to do is bring the people on from last year who made their predictions and see how close they were. They're not close at all. Jean Dixon was a famous psychic in the past. She uh, predicted in 1956 that the next president would be assassinated, and she was right about that, JFK. In an interview, she was asked one time where she got her psychic powers. 
She said that uh, one time she was sleeping in her bed when she was young, and she said a snake crawled into her room and crawled up onto her bed and began to talk to her. Now, if there's anything we know from the Bible, women should not listen to talking snakes. Well, only God knows the future. James says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Wheel or woe, health or sickness, riches or poverty, married or widowed. Aren't there things that happened this last year that you never expected, that never even crossed your mind and surprised you when they came to pass? But if you're a believer, aren't you glad for the truth of the song that we sing that says, there are things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds the future, and I know who holds my hand. Second thing we have to remember is that we are frail creatures. We sing that song. Frail children of dust, and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. James says you're a vapor, a puff of smoke, steam off of a coffee cup, your breath on a cold, crisp winter day. You're like a fragile bubble blown by a child in the summer and the winds of providence will take it to God knows where. Remember when I was, I think I was 16 years old, sitting at the restaurant that I was working at after I was done with my shift with another lady, young lady, her name was Deb Kraft. I'd gone to her wedding just a short time before that. Uh, she was 21 years old. Uh, she just found out she was pregnant and she was excited about that. Her and her husband were going away for the weekend. That was on Friday. Next time I saw her, she was lying in a casket. She died that night in a car accident. James says we pass quickly. A vapor appears for a little while, that's what we're like, and then it vanishes. You know, Moses watched the whole generation of the people who rebelled against God die before him. Then he sat down and wrote these words in Psalm 90. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, or like a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood, and they fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards the evening, it fades and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. Listen to this. And we finish our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, perhaps 80. Yet their pride is with labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. The truth is, it may be today, it may be this year, or it may not be until you're 100. But at some point, you're going to fly away. With computerized technology, they can take old movies, you know, things from films from the early 1900s, and they colorize them and clarify them and enhance them and slow them down so it's not jerky anymore. And then you watch these things. A scene from the New York City, 1904. Kids coming out of a factory smoking cigarettes. They're about six years old. And people walking by, you see horses go by, a, a couple of cars maybe early and whatnot. And every time I see that, I think to myself, every person in this film is gone. Everyone. Not only are they gone, their children are gone, and most of their grandchildren are gone. But the, the world that they lived in, as it was then, is gone. You know, and then we end our years in a sigh. Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it's subject upon all men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. 
and how we ought to beg God, as Moses said at the end of that psalm. So teach us to number our days that we might present a heart of wisdom to you. My dad died back in September 2018. He was 87 years old. In declining health, so we expected it. What we did not expect was to come back to that same church where we held the funeral and 29 days later to hold my mom's funeral. My son Jason said, you know, Dad's kind of odd because less than a month ago, Grandma was sitting in the front row looking at her husband's body in a casket. Now we're looking at Grandma's body in a casket. When I did the funeral, the second one, my mom's, I mentioned this. And I said, you know, there's some of you who are sitting here today. The next funeral you may go to might be your own. Well, one of the people sitting out there that day was the brother-in-law of my sister-in-law. He was about my age. About three weeks later, I went to his funeral. You know, hopefully, we'll never have to have done to us what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. He was so impressed with himself and Babylon that he had built by the power of his own might for the glory of his own name that God caused him to lose his mind and live like a wild animal until he acknowledged that the Most High rules over the affairs of men. And mankind, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That brings us to the second point, though. The humble acknowledgement of divine sovereignty. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, if you don't start with God at the center point of your thinking, everything else is going to be foolishness for you. I mean, if you know and understand God and humbly acknowledge that he's the one who rules over the human affairs, including all the affairs of your life, you will go a long way to being wise. But how many people stumble on this teaching of the scripture. The scripture that says in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Or as it says in Romans 11.36 that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. David said it this way. He said, All my days were ordained, set for me before one of them came to pass. Job said, For he performs what is appointed for me and with him are many such decrees. What I'm telling you is this. The Bible teaches that just as an author scripts out the whole character and plot of a story, so God has scripted out all lives, including ours. Everyone. What will happen to you in 2024? Whatever God has determined. And if you're a believer, you should take great comfort in what it says in Romans 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Weal or woe? Who can say? If you're a believer, it'll all be for the strengthening of your faith. But whatever comes, it'll be according to God's will, not yours. And that's why James tells us that what we should say instead is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Why, why is it evil and foolish to boast this way? Well, first of all, because your very life is in God's hands. You know, I like watching the old Twilight Zones. They're only good if they're in black and white for some reason. But uh, I like them because they always have interesting plot lines and there's some kind of twist at the end and there's a moral that they're always teaching. So one of them I watched was 90 years without slumbering. 90 years without slumbering. And it tells the story of an old man. He's living with his granddaughter. She was pregnant at the time. And he's always fussing about the, and obsessed with this certain grandfather clock that he got. And uh, she's getting concerned with him, thinking he's being, losing his mind. And so she sends him off to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, who talks to him. And he finds out that this old man said that his father was given this clock on the day that he was born. And he was told that as long as this clock keeps running, your son's life will continue. But the moment it stops, he will die. And he said, I was taught that by my dad when I was a kid. 
And so he was always on this. And they, they, they finally, through counseling, convinced him, you know, you need to get rid of this clock. This is an obsession. So the agreement was this. They would sell it to the neighbor, and the neighbor would take care of the clock. But under the agreement that he could come there every three days to rewind it. Well, he did that for a couple of weeks, and then the neighbors went on vacation. And he went to rewind the clock, and the door was closed, and it was locked. And he's, he's going to break in, but then the police come by. And as the, as the clock's slowing down, he's slowing down. And all of a sudden, he resigns himself to the fact that he's going to die because there's no one to rewind the clock. And so he's lying in his bed, and all of a sudden, his spirit gets up and starts talking to him, and he decides, no, he's not going to die. He's not going to believe that, and he's going to stay. And it's interesting because when his, his granddaughter asked him about it the next day, he said, I don't know. When I made that decision, it was almost like I was born again. Isn't it funny he would use that type of language? And so, you know, it goes in there. And then you get the part at the end where he gives the, the you know, the moral of the, of the program. He says this, Clocks are were made by men, but God created time. No man can prolong his allotted hours. He can only live them to the fullest in this world or in the twilight zone. You and I are going to live out the number of days that God has given us, not one more or one less. The more important question is not when we will die, because we will die, but are we ready to die? Are you ready to die? What if you die in 2024? Have you made peace with God through Jesus Christ? Have you given up the idea that your goodness and your religiosity and your righteousness will somehow commend you to God? And have you become convinced that you're a sinner who needs God's grace and that your only hope is that Christ's death on the cross paid for your sins and Christ's righteousness credited to your account allows you to stand before God justified? I can use you for, you're not even ready to live until you get that settled. And you most certainly are not ready to die. You see, not only our life, but our souls are in God's hands. Second thing we have to say is your plans are contingent on his will. As I said, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it, the counsel of the Lord will stand. Proverbs 19.21, there's a pastor who's talking to a lady in her church. She's a businesswoman, very successful. And he was talking about needing to get serious about her, her faith. She was a professed Christian. She said, you know, I don't have time. She said, I'm so busy with all this stuff. And she proved it. She brought out her, her day planner and said, look, every day is filled up for the next two months. He said, this day here, right here, on the 12th of October, on that day, I'll give that day to the Lord. She said kind of jokingly. Well, a short time later, she ended up with a serious health condition. She was in the hospital for those two months until that day. Evidently, she had time. She just didn't realize it. But God did. Third thing we have to say is, therefore, to not live in light of this truth, James says it's sin. He says in verse 7, therefore, to know the right thing to do and not to do it, to him it is sin. What are you going to face in 2024? I don't know. What did you face in 2023? Did you have some surprises or some truths that you learned? Maybe some painful truths? I mean, if you were a Christian, didn't those hard times press you towards Christ and trusting Him more? Doesn't prayer mean more to you now? The people who pray for you mean more to you now? Don't you realize? You know, they say that when we're young, we sing the hymns with much voice and little understanding, and when we're older, we sing the, voice, uh, the hymns with little voice and much understanding. The more we grow, all of a sudden, these old truths, we know we say, you know what? Boy, isn't that the truth. Isn't that the truth? And what about this year? What do you fear? Health issues? Some of you are worried about that. And some of you are not worried about it, will be worried about it by the end of the year. That can be tough. 
the great physician knows what ails you, he may heal you of your afflictions, but if not, he'll give you the grace and the mercy to continue in the midst of it. The finances? Now, at some point, we're going to have another recession, and one of them is going to be very serious. We'll end up with a depression at some point. You know, they say, that, that old saying by Herb Stein, he says this, he says, you know, people always say things can't keep going like this. He said, well, if things can't keep going like this, it'll stop. <laughs> and at some point, the issues that we have are going to bring it all crashing down. But sometimes the problems we have with money is just because we haven't handled it well. Maybe God's going to teach you how to handle your money and not live for material things in the year to come. Whatever happens, it'll be evidence of his love for you. You concerned about your family? Strained relationships? You got kids who don't know the Lord? Grandchildren you're worried about? Family members you desperately want to see get saved? God knows what he's doing. Maybe this will be the year that he will call them. They'll get saved. Let's hope and let's pray. For some of you, you don't know the Lord. Maybe this is the year that he will call you. I had the confirmation kids tell me that. Because every year at confirmation, I started with praying for them that this year they would come to know the Lord. And I had one of the kids take me aside afterwards and goes, hey, you pray that every year. I said, do you want me to stop praying that? No. What about sorrow for a loss of a loved one? You know, I've preached this sermon about four times over my 30 years. And every time I say somewhere in the sermon, usually about here, I say, you know what? For some of you, you're not going to be here to hear the next year's sermon because this is the last year you'll be here. Now, for some of the people I've said that to, they didn't live through the year. For some of the people I said that to, they didn't maintain their faith during the year. They gave it up during that year. I've never been wrong in all the times I've said that. I'm not going to say it this time because I don't want any of you to be gone next time. But you understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, we think we have everything in our control. We don't have much of anything in our control. And what we do know is there's a God who's in control. And if we trust Him, that's all we need. You know, I ask people all the time as a pastor, so what do you think God's trying to teach you lately? I've never gotten anything but a variation of this answer. I think He's teaching me to trust Him. To be patient with what He's got planned for my life. To, you know, to, to give me the, the strength and to be patient and to trust him through the things that I have to sucker, suffer with at my job or my marriage or all these things. It's always the same issue. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? What else are we going to do? Trust our government? Don't think so. Trust other Christians? They're going to fail you. They're going to let you down. The only person we can trust is God. So what's going to happen in 2024? I don't know. It could be that the next pastor you have will be your pastor at that time and they'll say, hey, your last pastor preached that. I bet he never thought he was going to die that year. Well, we're not hoping for that either. But we are hoping that we'll all be here next year and I'm hoping one more thing. For those of you who don't know the Lord, that you say, you know, pastor, you said 2024 might be the year that I come to faith. And man, that happened. God is so good. I don't know what you'll face this year, but I know who you should face it with. You should trust in the Lord because he'll never let you down. Like Jack Prescott, he knows what he's doing. This is all he does, and he does it well. May God give you the grace in this year. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we need to hear these things again and again. And especially at the end of the year as we reflect on it. It's very common for pastors to preach this text on New Year's, and I've done so several times. But each time, because we're facing new things, 
we need the same message, which is to trust you in the midst of all this. So Lord, whatever comes in this year, we pray that our faith comes through and holds us close to you because we know that Jesus will never let us go. Give us the grace to believe that and to cling to it because that's the only promise that we need. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to sing hymn 74.